Good morning. Hey, uh, again, um, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and we are excited for an opportunity to get to partner with Team Hernandez. Uh, the goal is to um, have a team of us go down to the Dominican Republic, and during the days, again, we will be doing some light construction, and then they've given us a number of uh, topics that they would love for us to lead their church in in the evenings. And so in order for this to become uh, move from dream to reality, we need to have a certain number of people who are willing to come down with us. And so if you're interested in that, uh, please email me. You can email me at pastormike.rice at 4fcc.org. That's pastormike.rice at 4fcc.org. And please do so in the next few weeks because uh, we need to see our, we're going to have critical mass uh, to get down there and do that. But uh, today we are launching a brand new series that we have entitled Relationship Goals. And um, uh, this is a series where we're going to be talking about relationships together. And so if you're sitting here today, whether, whether you're in person or you're watching us online today and you're trying to figure out, hey, is, is this a series for me? I would contend that this is a series for just about every one of us. This is a series that we have written for married people and for dating people and for single people. This is, a mar- this is a series for young people and more chronologically mature people and everybody in between, all right? This is a series for people whose relationships are good and you really enjoy your relationships. This is a series for people whose relationships are incredibly dysfunctional and painful, This is even a series for for those of you who are single now and you've decided, I am going to stay single, I am never getting married again. If you have somebody in your life who you care about, who is going to try and pursue relationships, we're going to give you information that will help you help them. So this is potentially a series for every one of us. Now, if, if you're not on social media, you're not up on your cultural slang, uh, this idea of hashtag relationship goals... This is in reference, all right, this is something you would say when you see somebody who is engaging in behavior or who's maintaining a mindset that will move their relationship in the direction they want their relationship to go. So for example, if you were to, um, you were to jump online and you would go to dictionary.com and look up relationship goals, this is a definition, in the definition you would read this. A partner who treks out in the middle of a blizzard, how appropriate for today, Uh, even with a fever after a long day at work to get you your favorite burrito, hashtag relationship goals, all right? This is the kind of stuff that you see and you go, that's it, right? Or if you were to uh, jump on Instagram or Pinterest and you were to, um, you know, look up that hashtag, which let me just warn you. If you search this hashtag on Pinterest or Instagram, okay, some of what you get is not going to be appropriate, okay, so you've been warned. But you will find some appropriate pictures like this one, all right? Now, before I concede to the point they are making, I need to have a cathartic moment where I just discuss some issues that I have with this picture, all right? All right? Issue number one, the cat on the lap. Issue number two, the cat on the TV. If you get anything out of today, please hear this. If you want God to bless your relationship, get rid of the cats, all right? Amen, dog people, all right? All right? (laughs) 
you know what, the number of people who got upset with me in the lobby after first service, it was worth it. All right. <laughs> Issue number three, what are they watching? All right, Lord Jesus, yeah, uh-uh, that is not any good there, all right? Um, but here's, here's, the, here's the point, all right? They're, they're, they're spending quality time together. They're all cuddled up with one another. One of them is making a sacrifice in the choice of films, all right? Hashtag relationship goals. Now, if, if you look this, if you were, if you were to you know, go to Google, type in relationship goals, you will get all kinds of advice as to the mindset or the behaviors you should engage in that will help you move your relationships in the direction you want them to go. In this series, rather than turn to the wisdom of the internet or the wisdom of social media or the wisdom of our culture at large, we're instead going to turn to the wisdom of the scriptures to try and see what, what is the scriptures telling us about the mindset we should have or the behaviors that we should engage in. And, and each week, we're going to look at a different passage and go, what's this telling us about what we can do to move our relationships in the direction we want them to go? However, before we dive into today's passage, I need to offer two disclaimers. All right? Disclaimer number one, this is not going to be exhaustive. All right, so before you get bent that we didn't cover, you know, this particular topic or this, you know, particular idea, we're only going to spend four weeks in this, uh, so we're not going to cover it all. And then disclaimer number two, and this is an important one, um, each week we're going to go to a passage, and admittedly, the passage is not a passage that is speaking directly to romantic relationships, but each one of these passages is going to speak to relationships. And when you take the relational principles that the passage talks to and you apply those principles to the context of romantic relationships, it can have a dramatic impact for good on those relationships. So let's take a minute and pray, invite God to be part of our time and our series, and then we'll jump into things for today. Father, just as we begin today, and there are some of us here in this room for who, you know, our relationships are good. And they're a blessing and a joy. And there are others of us who are here in this room or who are watching online. And for us, relationships are incredibly painful. And there's all kinds of disappointment and frustration tied into that. God, wherever it is that we are at, please meet us. Give us insight into our relationships, into the role that we are playing as to how healthy they are, and help us to be people who will hear your truth today and in the weeks to come. Father, before we jump into things, I want to pray for Dave Jarrell and everything that's going on with the, just the massive infection in his leg. And as they've been talking about different treatment options between debriding it and maybe amputating it and continued antibiotics, Father, we pray for your hand of healing on his body. We pray that you would meet him and Margaret in the anxiety that comes with all of this and that you would help them, please. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So this week's passage uh, comes to us from an interaction that Jesus had with some progressive religious leaders in his day. Uh, Just like today, you have folks who are theologically conservative, folks who are theologically liberal. Jesus had the same same thing in his day. And in, in Mark chapter 12, he has an interaction with a group of theological liberals. Uh, and it began like this. We read, then the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him with the question. Now, the, the Sadducees taught several things theologically. They taught that only the first five books of the Old Testament were authoritative. The other ones are just there for fun. They taught that there were no such thing, uh, things as angels or demons. Those were just fairy tale kind of things. They did not exist in reality. And then they taught that there was no resurrection. There's no afterlife. According to the Sadducees, you, would, um, you were born, you lived, you died, and then that was it. Which is why they were sad, you see. I don't know. It was cute when I wrote it, all right? So... Um, So this is what they believed, and they've been listening, because Jesus has been teaching about this idea that the soul is immortal, that there's life after death, that there's more to this world than just this world, and they've gotten to a point where they are sick of Jesus and his theological dribble about the afterlife, and so they're going to ask, they're going to come to him with a question, but it's all designed to be one of those gotcha kind of moments that's going to publicly discredit Jesus and prove that what they believe theologically is correct and that what he believes theologically is wrong. So they, they start the conversation out this way. They say, teacher, Moses wrote for us, if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife with no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, this is in reference to an Old Testament directive that is designed to keep the family property in the family and to keep the family name going. Bless you. Um, so, and, and the way it worked was, was like this. So, you know, so like if I'm married and my wife passes away before we have any children, my wife could marry my brother. And then when they had kids, that, that first child, they would, that, that kid's name, all of that kid's inheritance, they would treat that kid as though that kid was my kid and not my brother's kid. And, and so that, that would keep all the, the property in the family, would keep the name going. Now, in our world today, depending on your brother-in-law, that can seem weird or really creepy or even disturbing, right? But you're talking about a culture where the family name and the property, these were, family was this super high value, and that's one of the things that they would do. So they, they kind of set things up with the scenario, and then they say this next to Jesus. They say, okay, now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. So, first of all, we can say there's some kind of infertility issue going on here. All right? It's kind of obvious, right? But, I mean, like, we don't know, is, is, like, is this young lady, she's just unable to conceive? We, do, we don't know, did she stumble into some family where all of the men's trouser hives are void of honey? Something's going wrong here, right? And think that one through, you'll get there, right? But they cannot conceive, right? And so she goes through all seven of these brothers, no kids, and then the Sadducees say next, they say, 
last of all, the woman died too. And this is where they think they got Jesus. They go, okay, Jesus, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus, if this resurrection thing is really for real, how's this going to work? Because we know, I mean, we've gotten to a point where we're not down with this polygamy thing anymore. Right? And, and when we get to heaven, I mean, is there, are there going to be weeks in heaven, Jesus? You know, seven days, seven brothers. She's married to each one a different day. Or is she going to pick her favorite one? Or, you know, we've heard rumblings about this Mormonism thing. You know, they're going to bring polygamy back. They just got the gender, you know, thing reversed. How's this going to work, Jesus? Jesus, obviously you have to admit this thing just can't work. And your whole resurrection idea is just blown out of the water by it. If I'm being honest, on some level I can appreciate emotionally where the Sadducees are going, right? Like, on some level I can appreciate that it would be awkward, you know, like if you're, like if, if I'm married, I'm married, if my wife Laura was to pass away, right, and I was to, to get remarried, I'm, like I can, from the perspective of this life, I can get how it might be awkward in the life to come to introduce my current wife to my future wife. You know, like, you know, sweetie pie meets sugar britches, sugar britches meets sweetie pie, and I will leave it to your imagination as to which of those pet names my current wife goes by. She would probably appreciate you asking her after service so you can call it out right, but um, she's downstairs. She's got no idea this is coming. So, but I, like, I can get, okay, this would be weird, all right? On some level, from the perspective of this life, this is strange. But this doesn't stump Jesus. Instead, Jesus says to them, and, and we, we don't have it on screen, you can look it up. He says to them, are, are you, we do have this one, he says, are you not in error? Because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. As Jesus begins, he says, are you not in error because you don't know the Bible or how powerful God is? Jesus is trying to get these guys to see, listen, how you go about determining what is true with regards to morality and spirituality and, and, and life, how you decide what is true, what is binding in life, the scriptures themselves get to determine that for us. Just because you don't understand how something can work, that doesn't mean it's not true. Just because you find a concept to be emotionally unsettling, that does not make it untrue. God's ability, his power to interact within the created order is not limited to my cognitive capacity or my emotional bandwidth. Jesus says, hey, you guys are wrong. And it's because you don't know your Bible and you don't understand how powerful God is. And then Jesus says to them next, he says, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Let me say that again. Jesus says to them, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given given in marriage, they will be like the angels in heaven. 
Jesus is letting them know, hey, your whole problem with the resurrection, your thing that makes the resurrection impossible, it's all based on a faulty premise. You're assuming there's going to be marriage in heaven, and there's not. And then Jesus goes on to try and demonstrate to them that the resurrection is a reality, and he does so through the scriptures. He says to them next, he says, now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses? That is so insulting. <laughs> he is talking to the group of men who say the first five books of the Old Testament are the only things that, that are really Bible. So he's basically saying, have you not read in the book of Moses? In other words, haven't you even read your Bible? In the account of the burning bush, how God said to Moses, present tense, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, I am the God of, the ja of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Okay, the portion of what Jesus has said here that, that I want to zoom in on today as we talk about relationships and relationship goals is where Jesus again says, he says, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, theologically speaking, we know angels are like humans. They are created and sentient beings. But unlike humans, we know angels do not engage, they do not enter into a covenant relationship of marriage. According to Jesus, in the life to come, marriage isn't going to be part of the equation. When we get to heaven, we are not going to be married. Now, different people in the room, different people online, probably feel differently about that idea. Some of you, you're like, oh my goodness, I am so glad I came to church today. I just found a new life verse. Praise God from whom, I mean, that, like, that makes heaven sound all the more heavenly. <laughs> and if that is you, that just takes us back to one of my earlier points. This series is for you, right? <laughs> Others of you, though, you're like, just hearing Jesus say that and hearing me repeat that, that's distressing to you because you like being married. And the idea of you not being married in heaven, that, like, that bums you out. For some of us, we have lost a spouse, and one of the things that keeps us going is the idea that we're going to see them on the other side. Now, now, if you and your spouse share faith in Jesus, you will see them on the other side. But according to Jesus, the nature of the relationship is going to be different than it is here. When we get there, who we are as individuals is going to be completely redeemed. Our relationships with one another, they will be completely redeemed. And they will, that, that will come with change. When, when we get to heaven, we will love so supremely, so completely, that issues like jealousy and awkwardness, they're not going to be a factor. And it's not going to be a problem that I was married to this person, then they passed away, and then I got married to somebody else. Because when we get to heaven, marriage isn't going to be part of the equation any longer. In that respect, we'll be like the angels. Now, what I want to do is talk about some implications that this idea on Jesus' part has for our relationships today 
and our relationship goals. So we'll start with implication number one. And implication number one is simply this. Your marriage is not the ultimate relationship in your life. If Jesus is right, your marriage is not the ultimate relationship in your life. On a regular basis, I, I will sit down and I will talk with single people. And they, they will tell me either directly or indirectly how they are expecting that when they get married, that is going to complete them. That, that marriage is the thing that is going to cause them to feel, feel fulfilled in life. That, 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 that as a single person, they're like, like a bicycle with just one wheel on the back. When they finally get married, it's going to be like that second wheel. And now they're going to smoothly move forward in life. Aha, uh-huh, exactly. And I find myself thinking, just how, how many married people do you know? Because married people, marriage is wonderful, but it makes life more complicated, amen? Yeah, single people, pay attention. Or again, I will talk to single people, and directly or indirectly, they will say to me, when I get married, oh, that's the, then I'm going to know joy. When I get married then I will be content. When I get married, then I will be happy. And again, I find myself thinking, how many married people do you know? Because I know all kinds of married people who are incredibly unhappy. See, your marriage is not the ultimate relationship in your life. If it was, it would move on into the next life. It's not gonna. Your marriage isn't the ultimate relationship in your life. Your relationship with God is meant to be the ultimate relationship in your life. And part of the function of your marriage is not to serve as the ultimate relationship, but to point other people to the ultimate relationship in your life. Your marriage is a wonderful thing. It's not the ultimate relationship. And part of why it is there is to point people to the ultimate relationship. Now, we get a sense of this in something that the Apostle Paul wrote. In Ephesians, Paul tries to capture this idea when he writes. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. As Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands and everything. All right. Another Sunday, we will argue vehemently all right, about what Paul has in mind when inspired by the Holy Spirit, he writes this word submit. For today, what, what I want us to catch is The connection that Paul is making between what happens in a marriage and the greater reality that it points to. I want want us to to catch the, the connection Paul is making between what happens in a marriage and the greater reality it is meant to point to. In this first part here, Paul is saying, hey, the way that a wife interacts with her husband, it is supposed to be a picture of how the Christ, how, how the church should interact with Christ. Unless you think Paul's just hard on women. He's not. Because he goes after the men next. And you could argue he goes harder after the men than he does the ladies. Paul says next. He says, husbands, 
love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ladies, the next time a man says to you, submit, 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 you say to him, die, die, die. Because that's what Paul's saying. All right? It's right there in the Bible. Like Jesus died for the church, husbands should be willing to die for their wives. He goes on. He says, you know, um, he gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water and the word, and to present her to himself a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever aided his own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Again, Paul wants us to see, okay, this is pointing to another reality. The way a husband is meant to interact with his wife is supposed to point people to the way that Christ interacted with the church. You see, our marriage isn't the ultimate relationship. It points people to the ultimate relationship. And and when we fully live into virtues like love and trust and self-sacrifice and selflessness, the way that we are called to in Christian marriage, the people around us get a living, breathing example of the relational factors they are meant to experience themselves with God in heaven as they become part of his church. Part of the role of a marriage is to point people to the ultimate relationship. Now, here's the deal. In life, that which we prioritize first, that which we trust to fulfill us, that which we are willing to sacrifice all else for, that is our object of worship. I don't care where you show up on Sunday, what you say you're worshiping, What you prioritize, trust, sacrifice for, that is your object of worship. And any time we allow another person, another thing, another concept to become priority number one, the thing we trust to fulfill us, the thing that we are willing to sacrifice all for, any time something other than the one true God is characterized this way in our life, that thing is an idol. When I look to marriage, I'm, I'm prioritizing my marriage above everything else. I am trusting that one day when I am married, that is the thing that is going to fulfill me. When I'm willing to sacrifice whatever I got to sacrifice so as to achieve the married state, I've made marriage an idol. And in doing so, I put a God-sized weight onto that relationship. A weight that relationship was never meant to bear. Single people, if you allow marriage to become the ultimate relationship in your life, if you, if you allow marriage to become an idol, what you are doing is you are placing a weight on that relationship that when you get into it, it's going to crush it. Married people, some of you are connecting the dots, hopefully. One of the reasons you may be struggling in your marriage is you placed a weight on your marriage that your marriage was never designed to carry and it is being crushed underneath that weight. So, implication number one, 
Marriage is not supposed to be the ultimate relationship. Which then leads us to implication number two, which is very similar to number one, but it's nuanced slightly differently. And implication number two is this. Your spouse is not the ultimate person in your life. Your spouse is not the ultimate person in your life. To find a spouse is to find a good thing. But they're not the ultimate person. God is meant to be the ultimate person in your life. Now, the, the psalmist tries to, to make this distinction and capture this idea for, for us this way when the psalmist writes this. The psalmist says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me in glory. The psalmist is talking about God here and saying, listen, God, you are with me every moment. To the degree that I will let you, you will hold my hand and walk with me every step of this life. And then when I come to the end of this life, you're going to be there to help me transition into the next one. I don't care how good your husband is. I don't care how good your wife is. There is not a person on the planet who can do this. And so as the psalmist continues, the psalmist is recognizing that, that God is something to him that no one else can be, and how he should respond in light of that. He says, who am I, who, who are, whom have, have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, this is how we're meant to feel about God, not another person. As wonderful as a person can be, a person cannot be to us what God is. You see, God is the person who's supposed to be priority number one. God is the person who I am supposed to trust to fulfill me. God is the person who I am meant to sacrifice everything else for. And when I take another human being and I look for another human being to do this for me, again, what I've done is I've made that person an idol. And, and in doing so, I've put them in a no-win situation. That person can't do what only God can do. And so basically, I've, I've asked my spouse to be my savior. I put them in a position where they cannot win and where they are forever going to fail me. And while my spouse may not be able to articulate it, they're going to feel it. They're going to sense that I'm constantly frustrated with them, that I'm constantly letting them down, that I'm never what they want me to be, that, 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 that they are never what I want them to be. And eventually, my spouse is going to sense I am in a no-win situation, and they will grow to resent me for it. My spouse isn't meant to be the ultimate person in my life. God's meant to be the ultimate person in my life. If you, if you go way back in contemporary Christian music, which you don't have to go far to go way back in contemporary Christian music, but... Um, it's not like the hymns. Like hymns, you know, they have hundreds of years of staying power. You know, you go back a decade and you're like, that's ancient Christian, you know, music. But there was a song by Matt Redman a while back called Enough. In the song, Matt tries to capture 
what the psalmist is talking about. He says of God, not another person, of God, he says, you are my supply, my breath of life, and still more awesome than I know. God, you are my reward. You're the one worth living for, and you're still more awesome than I know. God, you are my sacrifice of greatest price and still more awesome than I know. You are my coming king. You are everything and still more awesome than I know. God, all of you is more than enough for all of me. For every thirst and every need, you satisfy me with your love and all I have in you is more than enough. We're going to sing this later today, and what we've got to wrestle with, is this just something I'm singing? Or is this how I really feel about God? Today, this is the kind of language that makes itself into cards and, and, and how we communicate, and ooh, you complete me, and no human being can do that. Only God can do that. And to put that weight on another human being is to crush them. If you're familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata, Johnny's an author, she's a speaker. For decades now, she's been a quadriplegic. And when Johnny lost the, the use of her arms and her legs, she was left to wrestle with what she wanted life to be, how clearly it was not what she wanted it to be, and how much God was in the midst of all of that. Was God going to be enough? Johnny wrote this. She said, I realized that the stakes were far greater, far more immense and cosmic than merely my satisfaction with a wheelchair and its unpleasant baggage. I shifted my focus onto God. His glory was at stake, and that made my satisfaction with him, not satisfaction with the way things were, the real issue. It was no longer a matter of being content with his plan for my life. It was a matter of finding him utterly and supremely the source of all contentment. This much to my delight would give him the greatest glory. You got relationship goals? Good. Want, want to see your relationship you know, move from something dysfunctional to something healthy? You want to be married someday? You want to take your relationship from good to great? Good. It starts with a mindset. A mindset that says, you know what? Forget about Mr. Wright. Forget about Mrs. Wright. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to continue to think and then in turn behave as though my marriage is the ultimate relationship in my life. It's not. My relationship with God is the ultimate relationship. And I can continue to have this mindset that, that my spouse has got to be the ultimate person in my life. I'm going to make Jesus the ultimate person in my life. See, if, if you are here today 
and you are single, if you're watching online and you are single and you are so frustrated in that, could it be that you are expecting that relationship or a person someday to do for you what only God can do for you? If you are married today and you are frustrated in that relationship, could it be that in part, part of the problem is you are expecting a relationship or a person to do for you what only God can do for you. See, single people, the best thing you can do to make you a marriageable person is to pursue your relationship with God, to pursue the person of Jesus as though these are the ultimate. And I get that can feel counterintuitive. I get that can feel strange. But I'm telling you right now, the, the single person who is content with being single, who can say, hey, I'd love to be married someday, but God really is enough for me, that is the person who is least likely to put a crushing weight on their marriage when they get there someday. And married people, Nothing will breathe greater life into your marriage. Nothing will be more of a relief to your spouse than pursuing your relationship with God and prioritizing Jesus above everything else. Because you will take a crushing weight off of your, your, your marriage. You will take your spouse out of the role of being your savior and it will give both of them room to and it'll give, it'll give God room to bless you. So you got relationship goals? Good, you should have them. Nothing wrong with that. But the wisdom of the scriptures is saying, goes, hey, start here with this mindset. Forget Mr. Right, forget Mrs. Right. Pursue God as though that relationship, that person, they're the ultimate. And make sure you're here next week as we look at the first activity we want to engage in that's going to help us accomplish those goals. Let's pray together. Father, just for some of us today, right here in this room, some of us today watching online, we just, we sense, we know. We have looked for a relationship We've looked to a person to do for us what only you can do. And while we had these great hopes for this idol, he hasn't delivered. So Father, we just, we want to confess this to you. We want to ask that you would forgive us. And God, we want to ask that you would meet us in our singleness, that you would meet us in our dating relationships, that you would meet us in our marriages, that you would help us to pursue you as though you're the ultimate. That we would look to you for fulfillment, that you would be the sacrifice of greatest price. You would be the one we're trusting prioritizing and that our relationships here on earth would
bear the fruit of getting God in God's place and everything else following behind. We ask this in Jesus' name.